discipleship and, and neighborhood community stuff. That's just one of my roles here and, and counseling as well. Um, one of the things about our, I told you I'd talk a little bit about our trip here and just from, I think it just goes along with our text, but there I had the opportunity to tell my story. Um, and they, I guess my wife had told them some of uh, my story. I grew up in a children's home, much like Casa Hogar, but the American version, right? And like some of the kids, I, I experienced sexual abuse growing up around the children's home. And so they, they had me go in, and, and they brought in all, all the older boys, and I got to tell my story to them. And then, and it was awesome, too. Irma was there. And Irma, everywhere, every time I had the opportunity to, to go somewhere and, and speak freely, because Irma is fluent, and she, she would take everything I said and they said and, and just helped us understand each other's worlds. And it was... I'm so indebted to Irma through that process. Um, so, yeah, I got to tell the story, and, and then they got to ask questions. And then four of the kids asked to meet with me and Irma together, and they wanted to talk. And in talking, they, their stories of abuse came out, the things they had been through, and some of them in their families, some of them at the orphanage itself, things that happened a, a, while, a long time ago, and things that they've never gotten any healing for. And they, every one of them, told their stories. Just like I did to them, they turned around and did to, to us. And we got to hear the trauma and the hardships. And, and there was something true of each one of them. All of them felt so much shame. Just deep shame. And they, it, they had these things they had been hiding for so long. And they were able to freely bring out. Even ways that they had hurt others in light of what had happened to them. They got to confess those things and be seen in those things. And tears just coming down their face. I remember one of the last kids, I said, buddy, what are you feeling? And he said, I, I feel freedom. I feel better. Friends, this morning, that's what our psalm's about. It's about confession. It's about our us our ability to have the resources to be seen. A few weeks ago, I opened up our summer series, which is on knowing God through the Psalms. I opened it up with Psalm 1. And Psalm 1, it talks, it's a gateway. It's an intentional introduction to the Psalm. And it says, this is the way of the wicked, and this is the way of the righteous. Right? It's, it's this intro. And now we get to Psalm 32. Psalm 32 is one of what we call, they're the, um, the, the penitential Psalms. So, confession. Right? It's, it's repentance. What does that look like? And again, we're at a place where this road happens, this contrast of what one way the wicked path looks like and one, what's the righteous path look like? What leads to life? Right? And, and I think I like this sermon so much because I feel the tension in my life that's in this sermon, in this text, excuse me. And, and, and so we're going to look at it. We're going to look at, at King David. This is one of the psalms attributed to him. And we're going to look at the story he offers. And then we're going to look at the contrast that he takes us into. And finally, what, how the psalm sets us up to need something. And, and I'm calling that a remedy. So let's, let's look at it. The story, the contrast, and the remedy. So first, the story. Um, this is, again, David who, you know, Scripture calls him what? A man after God's heart. It's a man after God's heart. 
Yeah. And this psalm is intimately connected with Psalm 51. Psalm 51, as most of you know, if, if, if you know the Bible, it's, it's the response that David has after being confronted about what he did with Bathsheba. Remember, he's, he's supposed to be at war. He's, he's outside. He sees a woman sunbathing naked. He has to have her. He has them come, bring her to his house, and you know what he does. He commits adultery, and then over time, her husband, he has him killed the man after God's heart. A lot there, right? Psalm 51 is his personal wrestling with God after Nathan confronts him. It's, it's this intimate wrestling and, and confession of his. And then uh, many believe after Psalm, that, that Psalm 32 is a fulfillment of, of Psalm 51, verse 13. So 10 through 13 basically say this. It says, Create in me a clean heart, renew your spirit within me, Cast me not away from your presence, Lord. Restore my joy. Give me a willingness to follow you. Then he says this, Then I will teach transgressors your ways, and sinners will return to you. Psalm 32 is believed to be the answer to that. Then I will teach. See, God did meet him. God did restore in him a clean heart. God did give him his presence in, his, in connection with him. And now he's teaching others, This is the way. This is the way you go. This is how you do it. And I love it because David, the man after God's heart, hardship is everywhere. Scripture does not make little of his hardships. Right? And, and if we look at our lives, that's true of us. We have hardships everywhere. We have struggles. We have sin. We have things that have happened to us and things that we have done. And David's story shows us what do we do with that? How do we deal with that? What's the remedy of that? And so I want to read 1 through 5 here. I'm actually going to read 3 through 5 for the sake of time. Um, can you pull up first slide? 3 through 5 says this. For when I kept silent, my bones wasted away through my groaning all day long. For day and night your hand was heavy upon me. My strength was dried up as by the heat of summer. I acknowledged my sin to you, and I didn't cover my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and you forgave the iniquity of my sin. That's 3 through 5. And, and what David's doing as he invites us into this struggle, it's kind of hard today to see because we're removed. Do you remember who David is at this point? When he does this with Bathsheba, he is the king of Israel. Right? And then things, uh, his church history tells us, or history tells us, that it was probably a year that David held that in before he was confronted, when Nathan finally went to him. And now the hymn book, the prayer book for the congregation of Israel is the story of David. I want you to just stop for a second and feel that. The king of Israel comes out of hiding. He says, this is what I've done. This is where I've been. And this will lead to freedom. It has for me and it also will for you. If the leader does it, if the leader is able to confess like this, how much more everyone else? So I hope we can see that and understand the weight of that, right? And in David's testimony, he says his bones wasted away. Uh, today, a lot of uh, counselors and others would call that a psychosomatic response, right? There, that there's something psychologically that has happened that we've done or, or has happened to us, and then our body, somatic, and soma is the word for body, the Greek word, that, so something from our minds is now showing up in our bodies, 
right? It's, it's like when you feel shame or guilt or before coming up here, I feel butterflies, right? I'm nervous about something and my body shows that. And he's saying, keeping silent. was There was this heavy hand on me that showed up in my body, is what David's saying. That God's pursuit, what it looked like was, I, I felt it. There was a sense of where... His guilt was on me. It was like the fever heat of summer. And you know that. Well, if you went to Acapulco, you especially know that. The week before we got there, it was 110, right? And, and also the Southwest in, a, in America right now. Have you seen the heat wave going on there, right? You, you know what it's like, though, to be out in the sun all day and how, how exhausting it is. Like, I understand now why there's siestas in Mexico, right? And I love them. That was, unfortunately, my favorite part. Of, I'm just joking. <laughs> but we had these siestas because this, the heat was so, it was just harsh. It was down and it wears you out. David said, when I kept silent, it was, it was like the heat of summer, this heaviness on me, right? David's describing shame and guilt. And, and in our passage, I think he's, he's showing he had both. See, the shame, shame is about hiding. Guilt, on the other hand, is a godly response to sin. It's a, it's a normal response that every human should have when we do things we shouldn't do. So I want to take a moment and talk about the difference in them so that we know that one is helpful, the other is not helpful at all. First one is guilt. It's a form of human anguish. It's a feeling or weight of the sinfulness of our sin and the consequences that accompany it, the judgment. It can have physical symptoms in our lives. And as one author says, it's holding something we've done or failed to do up against our values and feeling the psychological discomfort of it. Guilt is important for everyone who has sin. It's important to feel our guilt. Um, it has different expressions that can be more than this, but I don't think it's less than that, what I've said. Shame, on the other hand, is often called the hemorrhage or bleeding of the soul. It is to be aware, to notice, to perceive in ourselves that we are seen as deficient, undesirable, unlovely by someone we hoped would enjoy us. Again, the same author says this, the intensely painful feeling or experience of believing that we are flawed and therefore unworthy of love and belonging, something we've experienced, done, or failed to do, makes us unworthy of connection. Shame. So I get away. Get away from me. It's, it's Peter when he first meets Jesus, Simon at the point, and all the fish, get away from me, Lord, I'm a sinful man. I can't stand to be around you. Get away. Um, shame shakes us brutally. The very ground of our being, our core identity, the self, seems too ugly to face up to without dire consequences. Shame attacks the self in terms of identity. I am a, is the syntax of shame. That's shame. So guilt versus shame. David, does he have guilt or shame? And again, I think he has some of both because we know he's hiding. See, David doesn't confess his sin by himself. He, he commits adultery and murder and stays there. And he's, he's in, all, for all we know, is happy in it. And then Nathan comes knowing, he's sent by God, knowing David's desire for justice. That he seems to show. And you remember the story? He, I'm, I'm going to butcher it really quickly. But remember he says a man has all these sheep. And then this other man has one. And the man with all these sheep goes and takes the one sheep of the other. David says, who is this man? 
Nathan says, you are that man. And he's caught. He's caught right there. He's caught in his hiding. The guilt and the shame both are now exposed. Everything that he had been through, all that inner ugliness that he had been hiding, comes out. And he's seen. He's exposed. Um, I remember, this this is just a dumb example, but I remember uh, I have a friend, a neighbor, that I really want to come to Jesus He's a dear friend of mine now. We I share his wood shop, and we have some. We have we do a lot of things together. And one time I was I was on our front porch, and the door was open. I walk outside and I turn around and I just lay into it, my, our kids. Like I'm pretty angry. Whatever they did, I'm mad at them, right? And then I turn around and he's looking at me, <laughs> and I'm like, Dang, are you serious? You know? See, I, immediately I felt shame. I have this desire for him to see me some kind of way, right? To, to think of me a certain way, because I probably believe that's what he thinks, that's what he needs to know Jesus loves him, right? And I, and I, well, I would love for that to be true. But that shame that it brought about in me, like, I, I don't know how to face him now, if that's now my identity, if that's who, what I'm defined by. I, I can't face that neighbor with peace, right? And so, again, dealing with that shame, we all know it. You feel it. Your body experiences it, right? Um, David is hiding most assuredly because to be a good king, what is a good king? It's not Saul who disobeys God. It's obedience that makes me a good king. He can't tell these things to them. He can't come out of hiding. But again, he's learned the way. That was not the way. That was the wrong way he's telling us through his story. I love that there's a, an author named Sharon Hurst, and she wrote a book called The Last Addiction. She has struggled with addiction openly her whole life with alcoholism, and she wrote this book because the last addiction is yourself. You're, he's, she says we're addicted to us, to us being the final answer, us figuring it out, us getting over it to ourselves. And she says we got to get through that last addiction to have the freedom we want. But listen to her quote. She says, when you feel the sting of humiliation that often comes with being caught, it is hard to believe that it is a gift, but even the humiliation is a gift. It will either send us scrambling back to our oblivion to forget our failure and shame, or it will humble us enough to receive what is possible only when we're called to be known, to be forgiven, and to still be wanted. To be known, to be forgiven, and to still be wanted. And she's saying only possible there for the person who is committed to hiding. What makes it possible it's getting caught. It's a gift. It can be a real gift. Uh, Jen and I would tell you that we've we had to work hard on our marriage. Our 20-year anniversary is coming up soon. We've had to work really hard. And a lot of our struggles that we and we've been in ministry for 20 years. <laughs> and we have not wanted people to see our struggles. We've not wanted them to see the conflict that's happened in our home. And it's taken a lot of getting caught by our counselors and friends and those things being exposed. Even our kids saying, hey, you said this, but this is how you live. It's taken a lot of that for us to, to come out of hiding and to be seen and to expose these things. Um, but now if you're an Israelite and you're singing this song, how, how compelled are you now to see, I can come out. If he can come out, I can come out. I can be seen. And so how does David do this? He does it through a contrast. 
David knew his need to cover, that it, it didn't start with him, right? And so the language that he's using, even in the Hebrew, it would, it would evoke Genesis. Do you remember what Adam and Eve do? When they sin, what do they do? They get leaves and they cover. They hide, right? You remember that? And so he is, he is provoking or evoking that story, showing where, the, where it, it, all of us have the propensity to hide. Shame is a part of all sin patterns. It is, and evil loves to use it to put us in the darkness and to take us away. Remember, they're, they're, the Adam and Eve were in the garden and they were naked and what? Unashamed. And as soon as they eat the fruit, what happens? They, they cover it, they leave, right? But do you remember when Jesus, I mean, when God comes through the garden? It might have been Jesus. He's walking through the garden and he says, Adam, where are you? And remember what Adam's response is? Anyone remember? He says this. He says, um, I heard you walking in the garden and I was afraid because I was naked. I hid myself. Notice what he didn't say. Because we did what you told us, not we sinned. We, we had to hide. He said, no, I'm, I'm naked, so I had to get away from you. You see it? Shame. Immediately, sin brings shame into the world. And, and he has to get away from it. So it's not so much just that they sin, but it's what the sin does to them. Right? That's their biggest problem now, is, is leaving, getting away. They can't be naked and unafraid anymore, unashamed. Now there's hiding. Now there's getting away. Um, as one pastor says, he says this. I think Tim Keller says this. He says, well, you were naked last night, too. Remember when, when he said, God says, who told you you were naked? Who, where'd you learn that? You were naked yesterday, too. What's different now? What's different now is the sin has, what it's done to them and where they are now. And so nakedness is the absence of conflict, right? It's, it's, there, it's to be vulnerable. It's to, to trust, right? And it's unhindered presence of God, and they can't stand that anymore. As soon as they decide to be their own masters, as soon as they decide to eat that fruit, it, it's gone. They can no longer stand to be naked. Now they have to control what others view of them. Do you see that? They have to control what you see and what you don't see. And that is our propensity now. That's every one of us. We are great at controlling what others see. And there's a few ways that happens. And I, w- I want to bring up the, the first two are just, they're just true. Some of us are hiding. Some of us know we, what we've done or what we're doing is wrong, and we just outright hide and lie. And, and that must be seen and confronted, right? That has to be confronted in all of us. And some of us, you, you know, you feel that shame and that conflict, and we just keep swallowing it down. And what we do with it now can be interesting on the other side. You know that drivenness, workaholism, accomplishing can be a symptom of trying to deal with that. You know, it's one thing that, that as I work with different companies and people who have overachievers, people who are just going for it and getting it done, Many times, that's covering up something. That's a leaf. That's something to deal with what the problem that's going on in their heart. So we can't just look at drivenness or accomplishments and say, oh, yes, look at, look at the way you go. No, but what's the cost of that? You know, is it potentially a place of coverness, of, of covering something? And the way we know is that drivenness, that, that over, you know, overachieving, if you will. What is it costing you? What are you not seeing as you do that? Right? That's one. So a drivenness. Another one's a control. I have to control everything. Everything has to be in its right place. Right? It can be just 
with finances, our house, our cars, our kids, accomplishments. Um, a, a big one I often see is isolation and silence. It's not speaking up when, when the opportunity's there and you feeling that, right? But also living my life in such a way where people won't ask me about those things, right? Just living in, in, in that way. Um, I put confidence on here. I already, already said that. But my friend Chris, he's one of my best friends, and he says, we were talking about this one time, and he goes, you know, sometimes people ask me about something, and to be honest, I have no idea, but I talk about it for the next 30 minutes like I do. <laughs> and I was like, man, I think I do that same thing. You know, I have no idea about it, but, you know, they'll ask, and I just, I have to be confident. In that moment, I, they have a need. Oh, I get to be seen some, a certain way. Um, but saying, I don't know. Why is that so hard? Blame shifting is a big one. No, it's your fault. That's exactly where they went in the garden. No, the woman you gave me, she made me do it, right? So putting the blame somewhere else, medicating, using food, using sex, using work, using these different things to not feel these, not feel. Um, The next one's big in the church. It's giving, right? So if we give from deficit, are we actually giving? Or are we using our giving to fill ourselves? This one's often hard to see. But is our giving actually taking? I think the church often needs to repent of that. When I need my neighbor to come to Jesus, like he must in a way, because if he comes to Jesus, I can come tell you about it. Right? That's what I mean. It's like, no, I'm using that to fill me now. And that's a place that we got to, that's hard to see, but we need to see it. Another one I've seen recently in Christian circles is vulnerability. Being just vulnerable enough where you like it, and you won't ask me much more. I'll let you see my, you know, this much, because I don't want you to see this much, right? But using vulnerability as a tool to maneuver. And then the last one is penance. I've sinned, I feel my sin, and now I'm going to go do these things to be different, to get God to love me, to get back connected. And we wouldn't say it like that, but that a lot of our doing is, again, to fix what we feel is wrong with us. Or any of these in the areas that maybe you struggle with? If so, David's story tells us we can come out. We don't have to hide there. We don't have to live there. Actually, there is a way of the righteous that leads to a beauty, a freedom, and a joy that this psalm is speaking to that can be ours, that is possible. Um, Our two options are this. One, cover yourself. Or two, have him cover us. Uh, I, growing up with my boys and Avery, we, we always play hide and seek in the house and I love it. And, and, and when I was a kid, you know, in the children's home, you have like 30 bedrooms, right? So you can, I mean, I could hide. I was the best. People had the hardest time finding me. So I love playing with my kids. And so, especially when they're really young, I go, you know, and I'd find this great spot and they couldn't find me. And you know what I'd have to do? Hey, <laughs> oh, in there, you know, and they would come in there and, and they're, you know, they're right there, but they can't find me. But inevitably, I'd have to show them where I was. And you know what happened the next round? They would go, look, right where I was. So you know what? I couldn't hide there anymore. Friends, that's what we have to do. We have some good hiding places, all of us. And we need to go to our friends, go into our community and say, hey, come over here. I hide right here every time. And you typically don't see me when I'm right here, but I need you to know I hide here. 
And when, and when you don't hear from me, come look here. This is where I am. We, we, uh-huh. This is where it is. We, we need to know. We need each other to know. Where do you hide? Where do you, where do you get away? Where do you disconnect? Yes. So David's contrast is either he covers it or I cover it. Look at, the, look at it. Verse 1 says, Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. And then he says in verse 5, I acknowledged my sin to you, and I did not cover my iniquity. I said, I will confess my transgressions to the Lord, and he forgave the iniquity of my sin. Either I cover it, or he covers it. That's our contrast. That's, that's our options. There's no other options, friends. But he says that's the path. That's the path he knows. That's the path that's good for all of us, is to uncover it, to allow it to be seen so that he can cover and heal it. And now, finally, we come to David's remedy. And, you know, there's a tension in the text. Look at verse 4 here. It says this, For day and night your hand was heavy upon me, my strength was dried up like the heat of summer. His guilt and shame is heavy upon him, right? And... David sees this deep sickness, this, this, this thing he's been experiencing is taking life from him, right? Yet, at the same time, there's this confession, right? Look at the tension. So, is it this heavy hand that is the way, or is it David's confession that is the way, right? And what I want you to see is it's both, that, that God... In all of what David is saying, he wants you to see God has been, God pursued me. God's hand, he put it on me because he wanted to heal me. You know, my brother's, my brother's son, Ethan, was sitting on a chair one time and he fell off. And behind the chair, there was a big stained glass window and he fell into it and it cut the back of his head open. He was about three years old, right? Can you imagine a three-year-old with a massive cut on the back of his head? You know what has to happen? Stitches. So he takes him to the doctor, right? They get him there. He's blood everywhere. And Ethan is a strong kid, and he's going crazy. And my brother, they had to put him on his belly, and Thomas had to lay on top of him and hold him down and put pressure in all the right places so that they could stitch the back of his head. He said it was one of the worst, most horrible things he's ever had to do. But think, think about it for a second. In order for Ethan to get the healing he needed, his dad had to take his great weight, put it on top of him in all the right places, and at the same time, it's okay, buddy, I got you. I promise you, I know it hurts, I'm sorry, but you, I'm okay, you're, you're okay, I'm here, I'm right here. And in all those ways, just so he can get what he needs. That's what, God's, that's what God is doing. That's what this remedy is. And so a lot of the, the lack of energy we have, a lack of peace, the struggles we have going on in life, I can't say exactly, this is God's heavy hand on you, but I can't say it's not that either, right? I don't know what, if any pastor says they can discern that, go to a different church. (laughs) You know, that's not my job with you. My job is to say, this is what scripture says. And these could be things that God is using to bring his hand in your life. But why? To bring about forgiveness, to bring about blessedness, to bring about the peace you're looking for and longing for. And he brings just enough in, just enough heaviness, just enough of the tension, and and, and assures us along the way as we do this, it's okay, I got you. I'm here, I'm with you. 
And as the text keeps going, well, I want you to hear this from Richard Foster. I love this. He says, God has graciously allowed me to catch a glimpse into his heart, and I want to share it with you, share with you what I have seen. Today, the heart of God is an open wound of love. He aches over our distance and preoccupation. He mourns that we do not draw near to him. He grieves that we have forgotten him. He weeps over our obsession with muchness and manyness. He longs for our presence. That's our God, friends. He longs, and he's willing to bring his heavy hand in to bring us back to himself. That's his heart for us. Look at verses 1 and 2. Blessed is the one whose transgression is forgiven, whose sin is covered. Blessed is the man in whom the Lord counts no iniquity, and in whose spirit there is no deceit. You can leave that up there for a moment. Um, Who is the blessed person? I want you to think about it for a second. Who is the blessed person, according to this beatitude in the Psalms? The one whose sin is forgiven. What does it presume? That we will have sin. You you know when we have it, though? Oh, my gosh. God would not want, you wouldn't want to be around me if you knew this about me. And he's saying, no, no. This, this sin, if you see, now you have an opportunity to experience his grace and love. Now, the sin didn't create that, obviously, but God created that opportunity for us. And that's where the text is building to. But what is assumed is that you will have sin. You will have struggles. And that doesn't make God puke and run. He's right here in us. He pursues us actually in it. Look at verse 7. It says this, You are a hiding place for me. You preserve me from trouble. You surround me with shouts of deliverance. Instead of hiding from God, we hide in God, is what David says. So instead of going away from him, you are a hiding place. You are the one that surrounds me. You are the one that gives deliverance. He becomes our refuge, the place we run to. And I love that um, verse 11 says this, Be glad in the Lord and rejoice, O righteous, and shout for joy, all you an upright upright in heart. Uh, Where does he get this word righteous from? How possibly could he be righteous now? We know what he's done, right? Where would we get righteousness? And we read it earlier. Look at at Romans. Romans quotes these two verses, y'all. It says this, And to be... And to the one who does not work, but believes in him who justifies the ungodly, his faith is counted as righteousness. Just as David also speaks, here he is, he's, he's, he's quoting it now. The blessing of the one whom God counts righteousness apart from his works. Blessed are the, those whose lawless deeds are forgiven, whose sins are covered. Blessed is the man against whom the Lord counts no wait, not count his sin. Romans 4, 5 through 8. He's speaking of Abraham. And Abraham, what made Abraham righteous? It's not his works. He's justified by imputation. And I remember the first day, with the day I became a Christian, I remember the leader up there, and he had these VHS tapes. Anybody remember those? You know, remember they had the sleeve, right? And so he, he had one, and it had sin on it. And he had another one with righteousness on it. I like using my ring. And he took, he took the one with sin on it, he took the sleeve off of it, and he put it over on the other movie. And he says, your sin becomes Jesus's. And now his righteousness is put on you. That's what imputation is. Our sin is imputed to Jesus and he pays for it. And now his righteousness is imputed to us. 
Paul is saying that's what David was talking about. That's what David was looking forward to is the day where we get his righteousness. And I want you to hear real quick what righteousness is. It's not just forgiveness. Forgiveness, if, 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 if a judge says, hey, you're forgiven, that means you may go. Righteousness is you're forgiven and you may come. You may come near. See, righteousness gives us access to the Father. A simply forgiven person, they're, they're still in their sin. But a person whose death and the righteousness has been imputed to them, they have a clean slate, a clean record, and now they can come into the presence of God. Do you see the weight of Psalm 32? The righteousness that David has been building towards, that he had no idea how it would be fulfilled. But one day, that Jesus would come, the true David, the true king, the one who was stripped naked, became naked for us so that we could be clothed in his righteousness. That's what David is pointing to. And friends, that's our path. Remember our options. Cover it ourselves or uncover and allow the Lord to cover us, to hide in him. David says that's the blessed life. That's the life we want. That's the one we're after. Look at our last two verses. He says, I will instruct you and teach you the way you should go. I will counsel you with my eye upon you. The Lord's eye is upon you. He's leading. And look at the last verse, though. Don't be like the horse or a mule. Don't be like the... Who, unless, without understanding, which must be curbed with a bit and bridle, or it will not stay near you. His encouragement is, don't be stubborn. Don't, don't stay hidden like I did. Come close to him. I promise this is the blessed life. It doesn't feel like it at first, but it absolutely is the way of the righteous. Will you come out of hiding, he says. Will you take someone and show them where your hiding place is? And, and for us as a body, in response to this, again, we need to show people our hiding spots. But also, we need to ask people, ask our friends, ask our community, where do you hide? Where do you go? What do you need when you're in that place? Let's be that community together who lives out Psalm 32 and has that blessedness and the joy of forgiveness that we hear in this psalm. Because happy are those who live this way. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word of grace. Jesus, thank you that there's no sin too ugly. There's no posture in my heart that you can't bring the powerful forgiveness and righteousness of Jesus into. And I pray that all of us would come out of hiding, that Jesus... The fact that you love us and that you gave yourself for us would empower us to face our, our past, face our shadow, to face our struggles, and to come out of hiding. Lord, may we all have courage to show each other our hiding spots and courage to go into the hiding spots of others um, and find healing and blessedness. Lord, lead us now, even as we go to your table. Help us connect with ourselves and each other and with you. We pray in your name. Amen. Right now.